but let's pray together, okay? Uh, God, we come together this morning to celebrate uh, your great name. Uh, you have done great things and things um, supremely beyond what we deserve. Um, were it not for your love for us, we would not love you. Uh, we would still refuse you and be straying and going our own way. Um, but because of the grace of God, uh, what is impossible with us is possible with you. And so this morning, I pray that you do a work again through your word, uh, that I'd be some measure of a conduit of, of your grace to your people. And I do pray, God, that you'd expose um, idolatry in our hearts, that where we delight in other things more than we delight in you, that you would expose those things. Uh, release our hands from the things of this world, that we might love you more, uh, that we might be more effective for you in the, the very little while that we have in this life uh, to make much of your name. Thank you for uh, your promises that even now, through this brief text we'll read this morning, stand to, to give us ballast in the midst of a, a difficult life and trials, and, and many in this room are facing trials right now in specific ways, so would you minister to them in a way that I just simply cannot through personality or through preparation, through the power of your spirit, meet us through your word, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Go ahead and open to the book of James. That's where we're going to be again this morning. Uh, we're preaching verse by verse through the book of James. That's our pattern as a church is to preach through the Bible. And we're going to be uh, still in chapter 1. In particular, we'll be in verses 9 through 12. But before I jump in, uh, I don't know if you're anything like me, but I am a, I'm a little bit militant with expiration dates, uh, particularly with dairy. Like I just... I always have to look at the expiration date on dairy, even if we purchased it yesterday. Because, I mean, you drink bad milk one time, you're like, all right, I'm going, to the, I'm going to the label. How long is this supposed to last, right? I thought it'd be interesting, just for a quick second, to look at a few things that have unusually long shelf lives, okay? So salt, noted as forever, is the shelf life. Uh, honey has a shelf life, I don't know, I'm not checking facts on this, but of maybe a thousand years. Uh, I don't know who was around long enough to validate said information, um, but a thousand years nonetheless. Canned beans, 30 years. Now, how many of you would eat a can of beans from 1990s? I, I didn't think so. Okay. Johnny, there's somebody in here would be like, all right, I'd do that on a dare or something, but we probably wouldn't, but 30 plus years. Ramen noodles, 10 plus years. Like not only cheap, but durable, right? <laughs> and, and really good, quite honestly. Um, canned tuna, five years. I don't know that I would eat a five-year-old can of tuna, but there's so many other things. I think Worcestershire sauce, Worcestershire sauce. Does everybody have a we don't know how to pronounce that word, but um, it's, it's got a shelf life of like 30 years as well, or indefinite, you know, and I don't buy that. But, but the point is this, is like, you know, products have expiration dates. They have shelf lives, shelf lives. As we think about trials, like it's really, really good to know that trials in this life like have an expiration date. Like they only last so long. And that's a real encouragement to the people of God who are going through trials. And we're going to see that again this morning in the midst of talking about trials, which started with a call to count it all joy, brothers, when you do various trials, which we saw at the beginning of chapter 1. But there's also going to be in this text this morning this picture 
that not only trials have a shelf life, but the things of this world have a shelf life. And there's a way in which we're called to loosen our grip, to take our hands off the things, to not boast in the things of this world, but to boast in our position before God through faith in Jesus Christ. So I pray that both of those things that we would see, one is if you're afflicted this morning, you have trials present in your life this morning, just take heart because your trials are temporary. That this life is considered a momentary little while and although it may be full of affliction, there, there is a day coming where we will exist in such a way, if you know Jesus Christ, where you'll be free from pain, free from affliction, free from sin itself. And then maybe this morning, if, if you find yourself clinging to the things of the world as your boast, as your desire, I pray that one of the things that would happen is that just a little bit, if not substantially, if not completely, your hand will be loosened from the things of the world that you delight in that you boast in this morning. So as I mentioned, if you haven't been with us the last couple weeks, you can look at verse two. Uh, the first, one of the first commands, this book, uh, as I've mentioned, commentators call it kind of the Proverbs of the New Testament because it has just these nuggets of wisdom which can make it a little bit hard to follow the flow of James's thought. Uh, James is a half-brother of Jesus and, and he's, he's sending this letter to dispersed Jewish Christians And he's trying to encourage them, particularly in reference to their trials. He says, count it all joy, brothers, when you endure various trials. And so there's this extremely counterintuitive, supernatural command to count trials joy. But not because of what the trial is, but because of what it produces. Like, count your trials to be joy, knowing that it brings about steadfastness and this patient endurance that ultimately brings about maturity. And so one of the things I'll continue to say is that what we see like biblically is that for us as believers, if you're a Christian in the room, one of the things that should be among the chief desires in your life is to be conformed to the image of Jesus. And so trials have a particular way to shape us and mold us into the image of God's own son. And that should be a source of delight to us. So count it all joy. And I pray increasingly be for us a source of delight and satisfaction to be like Jesus in his life and his suffering, and his humility, and his submission to the Father, and ultimately in his restoration to the, the Father's side, the fellowship with him, that that would be increasingly your and my delight as followers of Christ. Count it all joy. The second command we saw last week, again, this is in the context of trials. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. As you journey through these like valleys and difficulties, they're distracting and they're disorienting. And so God says, you need to ask him for the wisdom that you lack. Now, all of us, there's going to be a day where we don't lack anything. But in this moment now, in this life, we lack all sorts of things. And one of the things that we lack is wisdom to journey through difficult moments and seasons. And God says, ask me for the wisdom that you lack. And ask me with faith because I'm generous. I won't hold back the thing that you need. And come to me in faith because I won't turn you away. Like you're my child and I store up, as it were, wisdom for you. And you just, you just need to ask. Ask God for the wisdom that you lack. And then today we're going to see just another, what feels to us like a crazy command, is that we would boast biblically. And let's read verses 9 through 12 as we... Spend time there this morning. 
Again, this is in the context of trials. Continuing the same theme, verse 9. This is God's word for us. It says, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. And let the rich boast, as it were, in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. And so we're going to deal with verse 12 a little bit this morning and then again next week. And there's somewhat of a debate on where it belongs. Because it can be a little bit like the culminating point to verses 2 through 12 that in reference to trial, remain steadfast, you receive the crown of life. We'll talk about that a little bit this morning, and then we'll tie it in next week as well. But James's Proverbs-like writing style makes it difficult to kind of connect things at times, right? <clears throat> and, and, and I think one of the things that can, you, if you've read this book at all, if you've read it recently, kind of in our study, it can be harder to find the gospel in the book of James because it's so, what's so present in it is commands, and wisdom, and rules and regulations. And so one of the things we have to be reminded of perpetually in this book is that, because we can, we can rise up with resistance and say, well, Matt, don't give me, James, don't give me just a book, a book or letter of rules and regulations. And I think we have to just remind ourselves, like, don't go too fast, because James says that if you have saving faith, although it's in Christ alone, by faith through grace alone and Christ alone, but that faith isn't alone. It works itself out in a life lived in such a way that pleases God. And so, but, but we see the gospel, and arguably in the verses that we see this morning, nestled in there is one of maybe the clearest depictions, like an oasis of gospel truth that centers around two related ideas of boasting and blessing. So verse 9, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. So James speaks to this lowly brother. So this is a Christian he's speaking to. He understood that the lowly, the humble in heart will be exalted and lifted up. You see this later in chapter 4. And as a result, they're, they're to glory in, to boast in, to rejoice in their high position. So lowly can mean a lot of different things, including downcast, lowly in heart, humble, which is the way it's translated in James chapter 4, that God is opposed to the proud and gives grace to the humble. So there's a general sense in which in the Bible for the people of God that God that God exalts the humble and he opposes the proud. Like he lifts up those who are low. And that's a that's a principle you see in the Old Testament. There's a couple of quick examples like even as Jesus was getting ready to come on the scene, one of the the components of Mary's song the Magnificat, her response of praise to the announcement that she would carry the Messiah was this, God has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. And Job 5.11 says, he sets on high those who are lowly and those who mourn are lifted to safety. So there's a general sense of the humble being exalted. But given the fact that the lowly brother is paralleled in this text with the rich man, it's probably most accurate to say that what James is talking about is those who are of low estate, they're of humble, kind of meager circumstance. As I mentioned last week, I think it was, that many of these Jewish Christians who are scattered about 
were both pushed out of the Jewish community and the Gentile community. And so many of them were poor. And so they're going through trials and they're of humble means, humble circumstance. So he points to the lowly brother and he says, rejoice, boast, although you're low because your position is actually very high. And they were in the midst of very real, very severe trials. I think once again, it's kind of hard for us, like sitting here, 2023, to, to feel the gravity of what they would have felt reading this letter in the first century as Jewish Christians who were kind of pushed out of what they knew, kind of living on the fringes of society a little bit, following this unique Messiah. So he says, you, brother in the faith, I know you're facing trials, but consider them joy. You, brother and sisters in the faith, I know your situation is bleak and you're downcast because of your poverty, but here's what you need to do. Boast. Rejoice. Glory in your low position. Now, this is like the same thing would enter in like we saw two weeks ago. He'd be like, here goes James the crazy giving me this nutso command, like consider a joy. Now James the joker is telling me to boast in my poverty. Like what are we, James, what are we talking about? Like we can rise up with this sense of resistance. Like my situation isn't reason for rejoicing or boasting. And maybe the Maybe just a, a quick correction to our mentality is like, well, it depends on what it depends on what situation you're talking about. If you're talking about your physical circumstances and situation, then yeah, there's many ways in which, like even for you today, you might not be able to find reason to rejoice in just your circumstances, your relational condition with someone, your financial position, your health, even. But there's a way in which James is kind of pressing us to look beyond the here and now. But let me just say this as I was preparing this, because I do think this is true. Our difficult situations or our trials tell us a story. So when you're, when you're in the midst of difficulty, it, it communicates to you a particular narrative about what's true, purported to be true. So your trials will tell you a story. They'll tell you certain things that you should believe about God. When you go through difficulty, you know, because you have an enemy, your, your trial wants to communicate to you that God is unfaithful, that he's, that he's forgotten you, that there isn't any purpose in your suffering. You're just suffering just because. There's nothing that is producing, and so there's a way in which trials tell us a, a story. They fix our eyes on earthly things and just the immediacy of circumstance. We can't see beyond our situation. We find it hard to see above our physical, emotion, and financial limitations. We can't envision anything past the pain and stress of the moment. I think if we're honest, we desire more than anything just to get relief and rescue from the situation. We don't rejoice in the fact that we might be actually conformed to the image of Jesus through this very situation. But... Our trials tell one story, but God tells a different story. He speaks of a greater, a deeper, a higher situation and circumstance that infuses us with hope and drives our perspective, a rich joy that isn't found in the trial itself, but in what the trial produces. 2 Corinthians 4 is one of the greatest examples of this reality. 2 Corinthians 4, 16 and 17. It says, So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day for this momentary 
affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So if I could summarize it maybe in this way. Christian, your boast, your glory, your cause for rejoicing isn't the circumstance itself. It's in this, that the weight of all your trials can never surpass the weight of all your blessings in Christ. No matter how heavy they feel, the weight of your trials will never surpass the, the unsurpassed weight of glory that's being produced for you in your trials. The grind of your situation can never extinguish the glory of your status as a forgiven and adopted child of God. And it feels like a grind in the midst of difficulty and trial, but that can never surpass the glory of being a forgiven and adopted child. The pain in the moment can never take away your position in heaven. This is what's just mind-blowing about the book of Ephesians. Like there's a way in which we're already seated with Jesus in the heavenly places. Like it's so sure, Paul says, you've been seated with Christ in the heavenly places. There's, there's an already not yet dynamic to our situation. It's like we're already there with him. We're not, but we, but we are. That's our position. So James is kind of pushing into that. He says, boast in your poverty because you are exalted. There's no measure of pain that can extinguish God's love for you. The, the poverty of this life can never compare with the riches of the grace of Christ. Weeping may last for the night, but joy comes in the morning. It's only temporary. So boast in your exaltation, don't lose heart. The humble, lowly, difficult circumstances we face, the trials we journey through are not wasted. They're producing something in and for us. The story you listen to will determine your perspective. The story your trials tell you will cause you to fixate on what you lack instead of what you have. That's what it goes on to say in 2 Corinthians 4. If you look back at that passage, so we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day, for this momentary light affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, they're temporary, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So the grace of God in Jesus Christ lifts the eyes of the lowly beyond their circumstance to the things of heaven, the things that are eternal, to their unseen riches. The grace of God also brings down the rich as it reveals their true poverty. And that's what James says next. Verse 10, look back there with me. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich, let the rich man in his boast in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls, its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. One commentator said it this way. He says, as the poor brother forgets all his earthly poverty, so the rich brother forgets all his earthly riches. By faith in Christ, the two are equals. Why? Because at the cross of Christ, the only riches we have come 
from him. Like the ground is level at the foot of the cross, someone once said. So the, the rich man is to boast in his humiliation because he realizes the depth of his need before God and the grace of God that has met him right there in that same place. So as the lowly and the rich man are humbled by the gospel as they stand before God, the lowly man, though destitute on earth, knows the unbelievable riches of being a child of God, and he would say something like, oh, how loved I am. How rich I am in Christ. And the rich man, though lacking nothing on earth, knows how destitute he is before God, and his response would be, oh, how needy I am before God. But yet how loved I am before God because of Jesus Christ. And so our boast is in Christ. I think of this song, The Wonderful Cross, which we sang just a couple weeks ago. One of the verses says this, My richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. Anything we might stand to gain in this life pales in comparison to the gain of knowing Christ Jesus, our Lord. So when we sing songs like I delight in you, we have to be confronted with like, do I? Do I delight in him in this way? Like I'm singing this refrain. Does this reflect my life? I think one of the things we do when we come together this morning and every morning we gather, when we take communion, when we gather together and we're, we're looking at God's word, is we have to be challenged with those kind of questions. Like, do I delight in God? Like, does, he, does he satisfy me like water? Satisfies me when I'm thirsty? Am I, am I looking to the wells of this world to try to quench my thirst? The very wells that Jesus says, if you drink from these, they're just going to leave you they're going to leave you thirsty again. But you drink from me, the water of life, the Spirit of God is going to do work in you that's going to well up within you. Rivers leading to eternal life that will never be quenched. You'll never be thirsty again. Do you delight in God in that way? Do I? I think the, the short answer would be, yeah, probably, probably not. But for some of us, I would just say this morning, is what are you, what are you boasting in? Like what, are you, what are you exalting in? Like what do you cling to? Is your pride? Is it your position? Your popularity? Money? Possessions? Comfort? Do we delight in God the way he deserves to be delighted in? And one of the things that James kind of zooms us in on is Wealth and riches, it's, it's kind of an unescapable reality in this text. And so one scriptural reality I want to just kind of put forward as an overarching principle is this, is that wealth isn't wrong, but it is dangerous. Wealth isn't wrong. Money is amoral. It just, it just depends on how you use it. So in that sense, wealth isn't wrong. But time and time again, scripturally, we see that wealth is very dangerous for the heart of a human being. And I think we, if we're honest, we can kind of disconnect ourselves from wealth because we might have some particular picture in mind. Maybe a Bill Gates, Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk, whatever. 
And we're like, well, I don't, I'm not rich. I don't have to worry about these temptations. Well, let me just kind of orient us for a second, if I could, maybe to level the playing field. The median U.S. household income is $71,000 a year. Median worldwide income is $2,800 a year. So 71000 in America, 2800 worldwide is the average income for a household. If you make 60000 a year, you're in the top 1% of worldwide earners. We hear about the top 1% a lot, right? In politics, it's likely every single one of us would fit in that category. Maybe some of you, maybe not. But I think when you orient yourself to what wealth really means in the context of the world, we're confronted really quickly that every single one of us is at risk of being satisfied with riches. Having things compete for our hearts and possessions. I know I am. And if you're here this morning, like if you're not a Christian, I want you to know I'm really grateful that you're here. I'm really thankful that you're here. But one of the things we see in this text, it's really difficult to discern if this rich man is a Christian or not. If James is talking to another brother who's a rich brother or not. But the Bible speaks to both those who are rich in the physical but apart from God and also to the rich Christian and how they're supposed to act. And I want to speak just real briefly to both. So for the non-Christian, riches are dangerous because they deceive you they displace your desires, and they damn your soul. Like that's the stark picture given in the Bible. Let me say that one more time. Apart from God, riches are dangerous because they deceive you, they displace your desires, and they damn your soul. Mark 4.19 speaks of the, the word of God falling on different soils. The parable of the soils that Jesus gave. And one of the soils is described this way. There's a particular soil that the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and they choke the word and it proves unfruitful. So riches will deceive you into thinking you have everything you need. And in doing so, the life is strangled out of the word in your heart. It's a really dark but important picture. I couldn't shake the picture of just like holding a bag of, if I had a bag of coins or like a bank bag, to hold it. It's really interesting about it is when you think about cinching up the top of like a bank bag, holding on to wealth. It's the same picture. As you cinch up on that bag, it's like the same thing is happening with the word of God within you. It's choking out the life of the word of God in you. If you, if you love riches so much that you cling to them, that's the picture given here. You, you try to choke that bag so it doesn't escape you and you hold on to riches, you are choking out the very thing that will save your life eternally. Riches are dangerous because they deceive us, they displace our desires, and they damn ultimately our souls. So although I may stand here and beg you this morning to run to Christ before it's too late as I look you in the eyes and I say it's only by God faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone. Trust in him today. I could commend you if I could grab you by the shoulders and tell you that and try to sink the word as deep as it could into your, into your hearts. If you leave here loving riches, it will choke out every word that I say. It will choke it out. 
It won't bear fruit. And every single one of us is at risk of loving riches in this life. And it clouds the riches of the grace of God because those are unseen. They're not tangible to us because we walk by faith, not by sight, and that's what makes it so hard. Because we can get our hands on possessions. We can even put money in our hands. Money can get us things we can touch and see and feel and smell. But it's the eyes of faith that have to grant us the desire to love the things we can't see fully yet. But don't cling so tightly to riches that it causes you to lose your grip on Christ. Look to him this morning. Trust in him. Mark 8, 36 and 37 says, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? And for the Christian, if you're in Christ this morning, riches will compete for your hope. For the non-Christian specifically, riches are dangerous because they deceive you, displace your desires, they damn your soul. There's some degree of which that's true of believers, but the primary thing I would say this morning for the Christians that riches will compete for your hope. Your hope. You have like hope displacement syndrome if you love riches. 1 Timothy 6, 17 says, as for the rich in this present age, speaking of rich believers, wealthy believers, God gives people resources in the kingdom to further his work. Being wealthy is not sinful but it can be dangerous. And one of the reasons is this. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty or prideful. Don't boast, don't rejoice in their riches, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but set their hope on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. And maybe as you look at your life, and you think about the riches that you do possess. Maybe you're, you're aware of the fact that you're more wealthy than the overwhelming majority of the world. Like, do you find hope in that? Do you find yourself maybe subtly trusting that riches, wealth, comfort are more certain than they actually are? Did you hear that word? The uncertainty of riches in God's view of the world and all of history a hope set on riches is a hope set on uncertain things. It's not a sure and permanent hope that we get from trusting in God who provides us with everything to enjoy. Ligon Duncan, who's a pastor and theologian, said it this way. He says, The rich man could look at his situation and become so satisfied with the gifts that he has that he forgets the giver. He could think that these things, these toys, these precious monies and material things, these are the most important things. He could fall in love with them instead of the things that are eternal. The rich Christian could easily delight in his riches rather than realizing that God has surrounded him with things that will ultimately pass away. Things that will ultimately pass away. And we're going to finish our study this morning by looking at verse 12. As you see in verse 10 and 11, this, this fleeting nature of the things of this world, verse 10 and 11, the rich man should boast in his humiliation because like a flower of the grass will pass away. 
The sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls, its beauty perishes, so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. And I just would share this. The riches of men will fade away. They're uncertain and they're temporary. The rich man himself will fade away, having pursued hope and riches, so find himself without hope ultimately. And some of you this morning need to be confronted with the fact there's no amount of riches that will pay your debt. There's no amount of work that can pay your debt. Christ alone can do that and has done that. So would you trust in him today? I can't preach it for long enough, fervently enough, but would you trust in him today? Rest in his finished work for you today. The fact that he paid your debt in full and there's nothing left for you to do but to turn to him. The riches of God's grace will never fade. They're sure and they are eternal. This picture of the flower fading seems to kind of harken back to Isaiah 40. Verse 8 says, The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Peter, in 1 Peter 1, refers back to that same passage which seems to connect to James. He says, We have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. I would say this, maybe if, I don't know how many times you've been in church before. Maybe you've heard the term born again before. And maybe that's a category of fanatical Christian, like in your mind. But the biblical picture is this. that Jesus said in John chapter 3 to Nicodemus, a religious man, unless you're born again, you can't get to the kingdom of heaven. You won't be able to get to the table to be a part of God's family if you're not born again. The implication is this. The first time we were born, something was wrong. Something went wrong in us that came from the original rebellion of Adam and Eve. We inherited a sinful bent of rebellion and self-reliance. And as a result, our relationship with God has been fractured. We're no longer in fellowship with God. We're actually objects of his wrath. And the Bible develops this wonderful picture of rescue and restoration where in Jesus Christ, we have this man, who lived the perfect life that you can never live, died as a substitute in your place to pay your debt, rose from the grave victorious to, to purchase ultimately and to give you assurance that one day you can be in heaven with him. And there's a simple way in which all it takes is a, a gaze of faith at his finished work. But even that is a supernatural work of God. It's a miracle for you to believe in it because our hearts are so bent to follow our own self-rule in the things of this world. So my prayer and my plea to you is believe today. You aren't promised tomorrow, and there will be a day you'll meet God face to face. And I pray that it would be clothed in the foreign righteousness of Jesus and not in your own filthy rags of self-righteousness, which will never be enough to stand in the presence of a holy God. Trust in Jesus today. And for us as the people of God, for the Christians, verse 12, which I'll just comment real briefly as I close. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he'll receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Jesus' cross preceded his crown, and so it is with his people. There will be testing before ultimate blessing. There will be grief before glory. 
And blessed is the man or woman who endures, who remains steadfast and faithful in the midst of difficulty and trial. Because at the end, there's this unbelievable picture that you will receive a crown from the one who is crowned Lord of all. If you can just imagine what that would be like, just even this week, I've been the recipient of a moment of affirmation from someone I respect and enjoy, which is so meaningful. I've been able to give affirmation to other people to tell them how much I enjoy and how, how faithful they're being. I had a chance to speak to Mr. Bays before he died to commend to him, you've been faithful, you've been such an encouragement. What will it be like to receive those words from God? Well done, good and faithful servant. I love you. Now enter into the life that I promised you. Now, if you are a Christian in this room, there's something in your heart that just jumped into life. I can't imagine what it will be like to be rewarded and commended by the God of the universe, the one who knows me perfectly, every single thing I've ever done. All of my brokenness and shame and sin and guilt, and he'll look to me, having put my faith in Jesus and having been steadfast in this life for his glory and by his grace, and he'll look at me and he'll say, well done. I long to hear those words. And I pray that you do too. There's something within you that longs to live a life right now that will garner at the end those words, well done, good and faithful servant. Blessed is the man or woman who remains steadfast, patient, enduring under trial for when he, she has stood the test, they'll receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him and all the fleeting pleasures, all the competitors will be a distant memory. As we stand in the presence of our maker, he'll reward us, he'll say, well done, enter into the life that I promised you. And unlike what you're used to, what I'm giving you will never fade away. Enter into it. And I pray that be us. Let's pray. Father, not unlike the, the very first moment where we realized that we were sinful and broken and apart from you, we need your grace now to, to show us the ways that we have gone, the ways that we are going astray. And I pray, God, if there's anyone in this room that has never surrendered their life to Christ, has never submitted their heart to Jesus, as the king of their life, I pray that today would be that day. Through the power of your spirit, would you reach down, soften hearts, make them from stone into flesh. Help them to receive your word and that your word would give them life and cause them to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And for us as your people, as a family of faith, as a church, God, I pray that you'd help us to love you more than we love the things of the world. Help us not to buy into fraudulent hope, the deception of comfort and riches in this life, that we would cling tightly to permanent hope, lasting treasure, lasting life that's found in Christ and in Christ alone. So as we sing this last song, I pray it wouldn't just be some bookend to our service, but it would be the, the cry of our hearts that in Christ alone our hope is found.
In Christ alone do we have the security for today and for tomorrow. And one day, Father, when we meet you face to face, our cry will be the same. It's in Christ alone that I can stand here accepted in your sight. And so we join with Paul in saying that all boasting is excluded, that we boast in nothing except the cross of Christ to which we've been crucified to the world and the world to us. Loosen our grip on the things of this world and tighten our grip on you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's go ahead and stand together. We'll sing one last song.